Betty Edie, E-A-D-I-E, was a lady who about 25 years ago wrote a book entitled the book Embraced by the Light. Her book was an instant smash hit. Uh, It spent 40 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and five weeks as the number one selling book of that period. One of the reasons that uh, there was such a rush uh, for her book is that Mrs. Edie had gone through a near-death experience. And so she was able, according to her, to give uh, testimony as to what it's like to go uh, from life into death and to see then what is on the other side. And so she gave testimony as to what she saw and what she did. In this encounter, this near-death experience, uh, Mrs. Zidi claims that she came into contact uh, with a a uh, divine creature that she recognized as Jesus Christ. And in the encounter, Jesus, she claims, told her many of the secrets that lie in heaven and then gave her the responsibility to then come back to earth and share those uh, secrets from the kingdom of God. One of those secrets, Jesus is said to have told her, was that he would never do anything, nor would he ever say anything that would offend Mrs. Edie. That Jesus was the kind of guy and had the kind of relationship with Mrs. Edie that he would not ever offend her verbally or by action. That she had become some kind of a uh, worshipful thing for Jesus. And he did not want to offend her. Mrs. Edie, of course, declares adamantly that hell today does not exist. She no longer even believes in evil, claiming that evil is just good people that haven't learned yet to choose good, but they will. Well, lest you think that I am picking on a uh, uh, crazy old lady and her story about going to heaven. I found in a magazine, Vanity Fair, December 2015, an article published on the actress Jessica Alba. The reason I chose to tell you this story 
is uh, has several uh, factors, several fold. One is because uh, she is current, contemporary. Uh, she's been a uh, in movies and and television. Uh, so people, even our young people, ought to know her name and be uh, in some way be able to identify her. Well, in this. Oh, a second reason I wanted to share this with you is because, believe it or not, she walked the same track you're walking right now. There was a period of about five years where she was in your shoes right now today. But listen to what happened. In the Vanity Fair 2015 article, Uh, it included a paragraph on Alba's childhood that it was marked by two things. Number one, by illnesses. Illnesses that landed her in a hospital often. And secondly, a burning desire to leave a mark on the world. So at age 12, Alba became a devoted born-again Christian Later, she became very active in a conservative Christian youth group and was part of the youth activities. Alba says that this time in, about this time in her life, she said, I was seeking a purpose. I wanted to exist for a reason. This Christian period lasted until she was 17 when she says she was turned off by the boundaries and labels set forth by churchgoers. That year, she attended a workshop in Vermont, an acting workshop, and she, quote, fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual. She said, I was like, there is just no way he's going to hell. So acting opened up a new world of creative people and a community where she belonged. And she began to let those people not just influence, but dictate her beliefs about God. She moved from being taught biblical truth into an arena where God was mocked. And in that arena, she was given other points of view. She was led to believe other so-called truths. And that's what's happened today. Because of the attack against the Word of God, against God Himself and all that God is, because of this vicious attack, Christians have begun backing away from biblical truths that we have held very precious for a very long time. 
And I know it's difficult. It has to be even more difficult than I can know being in a secular system in a a context of all different kinds of views about God and truth. I can imagine how hard it is. But you don't have to be belligerent. You don't have to be angry. You you don't have to get competitive about it. Just know who you are. Know who you are before you get there. Today, surprisingly, the general public's view of hell is, or belief in hell, is higher than I thought. 72% of Americans today believe in heaven. 58% believe in hell. Now, exactly how they define that, we, we are not told. It, but it just seems like hell isn't as hot as it used to be. You probably watch some Christian television. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the doctrine of hell on Christian television? When was the last time you heard it in your church? What has happened to the Christian doctrine of hell? Has it just kind of Vanished from the scene? Vanished from our awareness? Do we believe that if we just stop thinking about it, stop talking about it, it it will disappear? Or do we believe that uh, uh, Jesus had a conversation with Mrs. Edie and Mrs. Edie told him that hell offended her and so he took it off the chart? What's happened to our Christian doctrine of hell? My hope this morning in prayer, I know we have just a few minutes, but for the rest of the time, I want to present to you an instructive reminder of the biblical doctrine of hell. Our text this morning is Luke 16. Verses 19 through 31, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Let me take just a very quick moment to tell you this. And the reason I share this is because if you're ever in a discussion with someone else about the reality of hell, and you turn to this passage and they have any uh, uh, biblical, theological information at all, they may bring this up. There are those who believe that, that preaching on this text Because it was a story Jesus told that they put it in the parable category and claim that because it's a parable, we need to interpret it only as one truth. There's one central truth that comes through. In other words, if I told you a story about uh, this man I knew who 
kneeled in prayer. Or better yet, let's go to the book of Daniel. We read where Daniel knelt by the window every day to pray. And that's how the people saw him. And so if we were uh, making that a, 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 a teaching text, I could say it's important to pray. And then I could say it's important to kneel when you pray. You see what I'm saying? You interpret the text wrongly, differently than it ought to be. And there are those who claim that that's the situation in this text. My response is this. Number one, it's not a parable. Number two, it's a story Jesus told. And number three, if Jesus is telling an important theological story, do you think he's going to lie to us? I said all that to say this. You may never ever run into anything like that, but I said all that to say what we're about to look at is holy stuff. And you and I need to grab a hold of this and hold to it and not let go and let it be a part of what defines us. Luke 16. <clears throat> Follow please as I read 19 through uh, 31. There was a certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with crumbles which or crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might, may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son... Remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there exists a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here to there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send, to him, to, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he can testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They've Moses and the prophets led, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one uh, rise from the dead. And again, the Passage points to Jesus. Now, in this narrative that Jesus uh, tells, the storyline summons our attention because in this account, we are given, given a glimpse of 
the outer darkness. The realm outside of human experience and into the outer darkness, the gnashing of teeth, the flame that never goes out, that kind of outer darkness. And we find in this description three things that are true about hell or Hades, the place of torment for for non-believers. The place that an unsaved, unbelieving person will go instantaneously, immediately when they die from life into torment. We'll see three things, three statements. Before that, though, the things that we have to embrace after reading this passage is, one, hell is a real place. Jesus speaks of a lake of fire, and we get a glimpse of its suffering. So, as Jesus folds back the curtain and we're allowed to follow this one who goes from life into death who is yet unredeemed, unsaved, this rich man then encounters hell. The first statement he makes is, I'm in torment. 23, being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted and you are tormented. The Bible, given the Bible is our standard of truth. And being as fair with the scripture as I know how, I am telling you there is no other way to interpret these passages except to say that the rich man died and went to hell. There is, there is no other way To interpret this passage. And from hell. We're told he began to scream. And shriek. And torment. What kind of torment was this? What kind of torment for this man? What kind of torment in hell? Well this man speaks of a tormented tongue. He asked if Father Abraham might allow Lazarus to go dip his finger in cool water and touch his, the tip of his tongue, for he is tormented. In fact, this word torment in the text 
is is a big word, a big word, and that it is used in multiple contexts, meaning something a little bit different in multiple contexts. For instance, there are passages that when it addresses the this word torment, or when he uses this word torment, it is speaking unquivocally of physical pain. There are also passages when this word torment is used that speak unquestioningly of emotional pain. And this word is also used to speak of of spiritual pain in that there is a a distance. um, There there is uh, um, not a closeness between you and God. There is something there and that is that torment. So this word torment is is a big word encompassing all of this type of pain. Remember, Luke was a doctor. And so Luke was very familiar with torment. Luke knew what torment looked like. He had seen it in the faces of any number of his patients as They grimaced with pain. He had seen and heard torment in their cries and in their shrieks of pain and problem. When the Holy Spirit began to move Luke to write these words and the Spirit of God showed Luke a glimpse of of what this rich man encountered in hell, Luke knew what word to use. Torment. There's no question it is an absolute truth. Hell is a real place where the unsaved dead spend eternity in torment. The second thing this man said, first, he said, I am in torment. Secondly, he realized there is no turning back. He asked Father Abraham if he might allow Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch his tongue, and and Father Abraham told him, Uh, that's impossible because there's this great chasm between you and us and there is no way for us to get to you nor for you to get back to us. And so this rich man all too late realized that once you die, there are no second chances. Your eternal destiny is fixed before you die. 
either angels of God or demons of hell will be by your side the moment you die. One to carry you into heaven and one to drag you into hell. It is that simple. There is no turning back. God gives second chances all day long. On this side of the curtain. But once that curtain's open, that curtain opens into death. It's fixed. Finally, the third thing the rich man in hell said, somebody please tell my family. Think about it. This guy is in hell, in torment. He can barely talk. His tongue hurts so badly. And yet, he begs Father Abraham that somebody might go tell his brothers about the reality of this place. So important. Will somebody please go tell my family? We didn't know about this beforehand. You see, we weren't raised in a family that honored God, and so we didn't know these things. And even if we had heard them, we didn't believe them to be true. Somebody needs to go tell my brothers that this is a real place, and the suffering and the torment is absolute. Of course, Abraham told him that was not possible. He had Moses and prophets, and he said, yeah, but if someone were to rise from the dead, and Moses said, no, if they don't believe the word of God, they're not going they're not going to be persuaded by someone rising from the dead and and they they just had in Jesus of course but you see that brings up a very very important point that I want to close with and that is this the the doctrine of hell the doctrine of eternal damnation is an absolute truth not just because it is very clearly articulated in the Word of God, but also because the doctrine of hell is a part of the gospel. We spent a long time in one of my seminary classes trying to identify what is the gospel. The presentation of God's truth. The gospel. The gospel is that Christ so loved the world that he sent his only, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever 
would believe in him, would have everlasting life, and thereby not face the second death. It is that we were born into sin, in a sin nature, and we sinned, and we moved far from God. The wall between us and God was insurmountable. But because of God's love for us, he broke down the wall. Because had he not done that, I would be still in my sin. And I would be hell-bound forever. The punishment for sin is eternal damnation. That is the gospel story. The good news from that is that Jesus is the way. Because of the cross, he is the way of my escape. My escape from what? Eternal damnation. The doctrine of hell is a very important part of the biblical counsel, but even more so, of the whole gospel story. I, 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 I dislike preaching on this. I don't know what all is involved. Yeah, I, it, it bothers me that hell exists, but you know, I don't call the shots. And because God is greater than I am, I know there is a holy reason for a place called hell. I don't have to completely understand it, but I will believe it. And I will embrace it as a part of my uh, understanding of holy God because it's biblical truth, absolute. Let me close with this. I think you'll like this. These are excerpts from... um, uh, one of Billy Graham's sermons in the invitation, going from the conclusion to the invitation. He said, you may be thinking, Billy, surely you don't believe all this hellfire and brimstone stuff. My dear friends, it doesn't matter what I believe. It's what the Word of God says. The worst kind of death is described in the scripture. It's an unending death in a lake of fire and brimstone that burns forever. Just as we can't fathom the wonder of living forever in the glory of God, we cannot possibly comprehend the alternative. Every person who rejects Christ and his atoning work will be cast into this horrible pit of despair 
Worse will be to remember that it was by choice that God called you to salvation, but you rejected his wonderful gift. God does not send unrepentant souls into the pit of darkness. Those souls choose their destiny. You heard the saying, they aren't living, they're just existing. There will be no purposeful living in hell. Just an existence beyond misery. You may wonder what hell is really like. Don't look to comedians for the answer. The Bible tells you the truth. Hell is a place of sorrow and unrest. A place of wailing. A furnace of fire. A place of torment. A place of outer darkness. A place where people scream for mercy. A place of everlasting punishment. That is hell. John, if you guys will come on up. This morning, I, I, I want to bring to you specifically a two-point two invitation. One is for those who may not have really understood the gospel story. You didn't really comprehend that God is not just love and mercy and goodness. He is also holy and just and wrath. And so you're taking another look right now at where you are. Did you really trust Christ for your salvation, realizing that you were marked for hell? You were born a sinner? And the cost of your sins is eternal separation from God in a place of torment. And maybe you're just now really comprehending that. You come as God leads you. If you're looking for a church home, come. But I also want to ask believers, don't back away from this. We don't have to defend God right now. We just have to believe it and know it and realize that is who we are. Society's going to change. Your friends may change. Others may change. But you know who you are. Young people, as you grow and mature and move on to different experiences and 
uh, new outtakes on life. Never forget who you are. In your job, in your neighborhood where you shop, remember who you are.